Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue now with our series on the second half of United States history. In this, the fourth podcast. In the third podcast, we finished with our analysis of the impacts, both good and bad, of the American Civil War. And of all the items specifically that we discussed and went or went over in that podcast, they all essentially boiled down to a common denominator that yes, great as great as the victory was on the Union side. The Union was able to force the Confederacy to lay their weapons down. They were able to force them to accept defeat. But one thing that the United States Civil War did not do was change the mindset, not only of Southern Americans, but Northern Americans as well, that Black people are not second-class citizens now. That didn't change. And that is the important takeaway from what was discussed there in the third podcast on U.S. history, too. So in this fourth podcast, we're going to still take a look at the South, but in other aspects. It is now in this, in this time period of 1877, that being the year when Reconstruction came to an end, through to 1900. In that 23-year period, how did the South rebuild? Well, and that's where it sometimes it's referred to as the New South. It's a South whose economy is no longer going to be based on slave labor. And as a reminder for to my listeners who have been listening through all those uh, podcasts in U.S. History 1, but for those of you that didn't listen to that series and are just starting with the U.S. History 2, please remember that for the South to transition to a wage-based economy for all employees was beyond a huge enterprise or undertaking for the Southern states and their economies. When it was once based on slave labor, at the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, the South had the fifth largest economy in the world. 85% of all cotton used around the world came from the states that pulled away from the Union. They were not small figures in the world stage. That's the reason, too, why Europe was so beholden to the South and supportive of the South to win that war. It's not so much that they wanted to see the South win as they wanted the war to come to a close. The Anaconda Plan that the Union had established to blockade all goods going in and out of Southern ports was not only strangling the Southern economy, it was very, very destructive to the European economy, to the European economy, excuse me, as well, as well as other economies worldwide. So again, it's going to be a massive set of growing pains for the South as they attempt now to embrace the world going forward and what it's like to not have your labor supplied 
by individuals being forced to work against their will. So industry and urbanization is what's going to have to start trickling down into the South in order to help them rebuild. And the sooner the better. Yet, unfortunately, the exact opposite happened. The first thing that the South was going to have to embrace was the reluctance to accept the railroad tracks. The railroad industry in America at the outbreak of the American Civil War was primarily well over 90% all in the northern and then eventually burgeoning western states and territories. The South wanted very little to do with the railroads any more than they absolutely had to. Please know, as I, as I tell my students, it's not that the South was anti-technology or that the South was backwards. Railroads are dirty, polluting equipment. They leave a trail of waste behind them. There's no way around that. Between the smoke that belches up and then comes down into the fields around it, to the oil drippings and tar drippings coming from and cinders coming from the railroads, from the steam engines themselves. No, thank you. The South likes to keep their crops and plantations glistening nice and clean. They don't need the railroads polluting that. That was going to have to change. And by 1890, the railroad tracks within the United States had doubled. At the same time, the track width became the worldwide standard. And what I mean by track width is that the railroad track, if you were to take a tape measure and measure from the center of one railhead opposite to the railhead next to you, the width of the tracks, in other words, you would see that it measures what some people believe is a pretty oddball figure of four feet, eight and a half inches, or put another way, 56 and a half inches. Now, please, I ask you if you're in doubt of my numbers, if you don't think I'm accurate, please just Google it, check your sources and they'll confirm, you know, reputable sources will confirm it. Why am I stressing this? I really don't want any of my listeners pulling their car over, grabbing a tape measure and measuring the width of a railroad track. I do not want to find out the hard way that one of my listeners was picked off on the route by, by uh, oncoming train as they were measuring the width of those railroad tracks. Trust me, they're four feet, eight and a half inches. And it's not that there are not deviations from that in certain places of the globe, even here in the United States. Your coal lines, your ore trains, they generally will run at a 36 inch width, much narrower. The Soviet Union, former Soviet states, still to this day, the Russian, the former states within the Soviet Union are still running on the 36 inch diameter. The reason being is that, as we'll discuss in the Second World War, Stalin had suspicion that the key to Hitler's success was the use of the railroad when he attacked Poland, Denmark, the Benelux countries, and France. As a result, Stalin, under the cover of darkness, made it, an in, made it a nationwide industry standard of cutting off the excess inches from all axles of all locomotives and rolling stock and bringing the rails in to 36 inches. That way, German rail lines or European rail lines could never connect up to Russian rail lines, which is what stopped Hitler, no pun intended, in his tracks. Yet, the cost to try to go back to the international standard is so prohibitive that the Soviet Union for its entire existence after World War II 
nor have they through to the 21st century have ever had within them to go back to the international standard of four feet, eight and a half inches. I lost a unique opportunity when I was traveling in the Far East, when I had to return to Western Europe. I unfortunately had to fly back, but I was looking into getting a ticket to taking the railroad from Western China, north through the Soviet, through the through Russia, directly west throughout the Russian territory and former Russian states before I would connect up to the Western European rail lines. Why I wanted to experience that is because when the rail cars come from a non-Russian railroad, the carriages themselves, the actual cars that hold the people, those are lifted off of the wheels from the international standard wheels onto the Russian wheel sets, which of course are shorter, as I mentioned. And then the trains take the 36 inch wheel cars all the way through Russia. When they get to Western Europe, those same cars are then taken off the 36 inch wheel sets over to the 56 and a half inch wheel sets, put them down and then on you go on your journey. It just truly is a neat experience and one unfortunately I wasn't able to, to capitalize on. So the track width becomes standardized not only throughout the United States, but also throughout the world. It is also at this time that America, scratching its head, finally says we have to do something about the way the railroad has screwed up time. And let me rephrase that. America realized they have to do something about this concept called time because of the way the railroad screwed it up. Listeners, think about this. Prior to the invention of the railroad, and forget railroad, don't think railroad like a major company. Let's just take a steam engine. Prior to the advent of a human being taking a steam engine, bolting it to a massive wooden platform with a set of wheels below it, and a set of rails directly in front of it to go on for miles and miles, even with a brake system established, people were reluctant to jump on board, quote unquote, to actually test just how fast can this steam engine push this tram. And by extension, if we attached cars to it, how fast can these vehicles go? If you, as I say, if you think about it, Thomas Jefferson, heck, all the way up through to Andrew Jackson, our seventh president of the United States could not walk around Washington, D.C. any faster than Julius Caesar could walk around Rome or Alexander the Great could walk around Greece. There was no invention, no progress in trying to be able to get humans from point A to point B in the history of humanity, other than on the back of an animal, which as we know, the faster the animal goes generally, the shorter the distance they can take you. So humans didn't by and large have any real luck, any, excuse me, any real uh, experience with speed. And because of that, humans were people, Americans especially, were very reluctant to adopt the technology of the, of the train, of the rail car, because we didn't know if a human body actually traveled consistently 
at 20 miles an hour or more, can again, for a long time, could the human body endure that? They didn't know. And if you laugh at them, especially if you're driving your car listening to this podcast, and you look at your speedometer, sure, we could take people from this time period. If they could look in your at the speedometer in anybody's car that's at, a car that anybody owns, <laughs> they probably would stroke out if they could truly see that this car could go 80, 90, 100 miles an hour or more. Heck, what do you think they would do if they saw the inside of a Ferrari, right, or a Lamborghini? But again, they didn't know that. And again, before you laugh too much, thinking, yeah, well, that was their backwards thinking back then. We know better. Speed doesn't hurt us. Think again. There's a reason why America's fast, fastest fighter jets can go over Mach 2, but not much beyond that. You mean to tell me we haven't designed the frame of a plane or jet engines that can actually push planes faster, propel them faster than 1,400 miles an hour? Sure we can and have. The problem is we can't put a human being in there because, as these people wondered back then in the 1800s, yes, speed can kill. This is the reason why when our United States Air Force and Naval Air Force fighter pilots get into dogfighting at high speeds, they need to have those anti-gravity suits to be able to keep that blood supply to the heart and just as importantly to the brain. Otherwise, the, the uh, pilot and anybody in the aircraft passes out. You can only push a human being so far at certain speeds and have forced them to turn direction without killing them. So yes, speed can kill. Now, some of my listeners out there, if you're thinking, wait a minute, Chris, doesn't the space shuttle go faster than that? Oh, absolutely it does. Leaving this atmosphere and especially coming into this atmosphere, the space shuttles are, or at their time when they were running for all 133 flights that successfully made it back, oh my gosh, yes, are they traveling at well over 1,400 miles an hour. They're traveling close to the speed that the world is actually spinning, north of 18,000 miles an hour. They have to go practically that fast as they slowly work their way into the atmosphere. Otherwise, the speed of the wind would burn up, sadly, as it did the space shuttle Columbia on February 1st, 2003. You can get a real uh, mild, extremely mild sense of just how bad wind can hurt if you roll down your window Going down an expressway at 55, 65, 75 miles an hour, I'm going to pretend none of my listeners are going anywhere beyond that. I never have. Okay, maybe I have. But nevertheless, if you stick your hand out of a car window going even at that speed of 75 miles an hour, you it, it feels uncomfortable. It can actually hurt after a while. Now, can you imagine 1,400 miles an hour, 18,000 miles an hour? So the space shuttle ch challengers, the space shuttles, uh, space shuttles themselves, came in at extremely high speed, but the reason they were able to do so with their astronauts safely on board is because they always came in on a gradual arc. There was no significant turns. They didn't bank to the left or bank to the right. As a result of their gradual arc all the way to the Air Force Base in which they were to land. So again, we might laugh and think, okay, these people, you know, they're kind of nuts thinking speed kills. And believe it or not, they were actually onto something. So 
because of this, as I say, humans now were traveling from city to city faster than human beings had ever traveled before. Traveling from north to south, say from northern New York to southern New York, no big deal. Or from northern Georgia to southern Florida, no big deal. Time didn't seem to misbehave, as they were calling it at the time, at that particular area in history. Rather, it's when we took a train from New York City directly west to Chicago, or west from Chicago to San Francisco, that's when our middle-aged concept of time and 24-hour units within a given day seem to go awry. Because if the sun set at 6 p.m. in Chicago, then why did it seem to be taking longer to set the faster one traveled west? And if one traveled from Chicago directly east, why did the sun want to set faster? What's wrong with our concept of time? Of course, nothing. It's just that our perception of our understanding of time, please remember, time is not so much an invention, ladies and gentlemen, as it is an agreement. We agree with these demarcations within a given day, hours, minutes, seconds. We agree to that. My podcast, Don't Exceed 30 Minutes, I agree to that. You agree to that, unless you stop me sooner, which I don't blame you. My students in a 50-minute class, we agree to that. So time's an agreement. That's really all it is. But our understanding of it now has run amok because of this East-West issue. And that's the reason why in the time period that these podcasts cover, on November 18th, 1883, within the United States, the concept or the item called a time zone was born. And that's when we have our East Coast time, Pacific time, Central Standard time, etc. And then, of course, there's 24 time zones paralleling our 24 hours in a given day. Please note, though, a couple of things of importance. Time zones, and I, I do strongly encourage you, if you have the opportunity to, to go on the internet, open up a search engine, and just type in time zones map. Look at a map of the United States, and if you're interested, look at a map of the world. And you'll see that the time zones are not as perfect lines as we maybe thought they were. Even just in our own Midwest, Chicago. In Ohio, I'm on Eastern time, but my hometown of Chicago is on Central time. So because of that, you would think that there's an even line dividing Illinois and Indiana, when in fact there isn't. The very southwestern portion of Indiana is not on Indiana's time zone. It's on Illinois. Same thing with the northwest. Gary, Indiana, Whiting, that area is paralleling central time zone. The reason being is because of the vast number of workers in those uh, citizens of Indiana in those particular cities that travel to Illinois for work. Because of that, in the way that the change in time zone negatively impacted their workday, truly five days a week, 52 weeks a year, that the state of Indiana allowed those particular cities and their suburbs and regions 
to adopt central time zone. So time zone is a way to try to help us control our understanding of time, but it's also done as a useful tool to allow its greatest benefits to the greatest number of people at a given time. But if you're on the world map, scroll over and take a look at China. China technically spans five time zones. Yet when I traveled in China, I never had to worry about what time it was or where, where, with where I was in the country because it was all on one time zone. China doesn't break down its country on time zones. Neither does India. That may change as they march, continue to march forward time-wise, but currently not every country in the world adopts this concept of time zone. So within this railroad, uh, the, the rise of the railroad in the United States, we also come up to this concept of, hey, don't hang around with so-and-so. Well, you don't want to date so-and-so. Why? What's wrong with them? We're in the same grade. Our parents know one another. Yeah, yeah, I know that. But uh, they're, they're, they're from the wrong side of the tracks, okay? Let's just leave it at that. They're from the wrong side of the tracks. Well, of course, the phrase, the wrong side of the tracks, comes with the rise of the railroad. If that phrase didn't exist before the invention of the railroad, which makes one wonder, what does that really mean? The wrong side of the tracks, of course, especially for my international listeners, the wrong side of the tracks meant that they were the, there was less than they were not as good as the right side of the tracks, whatever it was, whether it be a house, a school, even unfortunately a person, a family. Well, what is this wrong side of the tracks? Did it really exist? And if it did, what was the wrong side of the tracks? And don't kill the messenger. There is an actual wrong side of the tracks. And in fact, there's two of them. You might say, well, there's only two sides to a set of railroad tracks, Chris, you losing your mind over there? No, bear with me here. It depends upon what direction the rail lines are going. In the United States, one set of rail lines going from the East Coast directly to the West Coast, the wrong side of the tracks would be the Southern portion, the Southern part. A set of railroad tracks going North-South, Texas directly North to Minnesota, the wrong side of the tracks is the East side of the tracks. And by chance, if you are living in one of those sides of the tracks, I'm not saying anything against you, but there is still a wrong side of the tracks even to this day, although it is much less, quote unquote, wrong than it used to be. The reason for the wrong side of the tracks phrase that came about was because as the railroad lines continued to get more and more numerous throughout the United States, the more numerous they are often went hand in hand with how many more trains came by a day. In the early days of railroad history, when we have these massive steam engines belching out that black smoke, unlike why the way Hollywood can portray a steam engine going at high speed or even low speed with that black smoke going way up and dissipating in the air, that's not the reality. I have been on steam engines up close, I have worked on steam engines physically inside their guts. I have been in the cabs of these steam engines, and I've been pulled behind steam engines. In fact, I had an opportunity to do that in um, the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan. And I knew my kids would be excited to take a ride on a passenger train line. So we went about it, and we got the tickets. We, I showed the kids the steam engine, showed them some of the major parts of the steam engine, and then continued to walk past the engine towards the rail car. And I obviously, I picked up that people were very familiar with what it was like to ride the steam engine passenger train 
at the Henry Ford Museum in Greenwich Village. Why? Because the first the first passenger car didn't have anybody in it. There were no sides, no windows. They were completely open rail cars where you could literally jump in one side and jump out the other. Although when seated, you had to be uh, with your, you had to sit still and hang on to the poles. But the first rail car was empty. And of course, I encouraged my kids to jump on the first seat. So these benches go the width of the uh, rail cars, which, by the way, I didn't mention before, where we get that odd number of 56 and a half inches, we get those all the way back to the Roman days of the chariots, fast forwarding through the days of the Conestoga wagons, when a wagon would be pulled behind a set of horses, the average axle width was 56 and a half inches. It's amazing the way new technology, how much the new actually pulls from the old. And as we'll talk about in later podcasts, when it does that, the easier it is to sell to the public. Something brand, brand new, complete with its own terminology, has a lot more difficulty being sold to the marketplace than new technology embracing old terminology. More about that when we get there. So that's where we get that 56 and a half inches from. So sure enough, we jump into the rail car and I encourage my wife to sit right in the middle, as in the middle as we can sit on this rail car. And in the passenger cars as well, the kids love to hang out the sides. And I did not stop my kids from doing so. Sure enough, the engine blows its beautiful, impressive horn or whistle, more or less. And the train engine begins to start chugging. And I wink to my wife, who's given me this quizzical look. And sure enough, not literally, not 30 seconds after we're pulling away, the train is moving. Do I hear my kids coughing and brushing their faces and brushing their eyes and whatnot with their hands because of all the cinder and smoke that's coming down along the rail cars? Okay, so write me up for child abuse, fine. But nevertheless, I wanted them to experience it, though. But this was the reality of life in the steam engine age. Because of that, the east side of the tracks and the south side of the tracks is where the smoke predominantly was blown to because of the prevailing wind patterns in the United States. Due to the Coriolis effect of the spinning of a globe with an atmosphere that is lagging behind, the traditional wind pattern in the 48 lower states is west to east, north to south. As a result, those rail lines, depending upon how they were oriented, the smoke blew and all the cinders and all that pollution came down along the tracks. If the train was traveling at a higher speed, that doesn't mean the smoke was going higher up, just the opposite. The faster it was being blown down, but more, much more smoke being belted out, belched out because the train's going at a higher speed. That engine is working far harder, burning far more coal and water or wood and water. Because of that, all that pollution gets belted out right along the railroad tracks and even some cases several hundred feet, in some cases even longer than that. As a result, houses and structures on the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks were often dirtier, darker than the same structures on the other side of the tracks. 
So that's where we get this term from the wrong side of the tracks with the invention of the railroad. Now that you'll sleep much better tonight knowing where that phrase came from. And again, apologies if you live on the wrong side of the tracks. Don't worry, I did for two years. In fact, I chose my apartments to be on the wrong side of the tracks because I loved trains at the time and still do. So today uh, with the railroad tracks, we have laid down over 140,000 miles of rails within the United States carrying 40 tons of goods per person per year. We have an insatiable appetite for railroad cargo. This pulled from an article in Time Magazine on April 10th, 2017 on page 40. But that's where we get our current statistics on. Sweet Home was my beloved hometown of Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Illinois should never have become anything more than the raucous little village that it was that the French dubbed Smelly Onions, which translated from, which in French is Chicago, which means, again, that means Smelly Onions. Chicago should never have been on the map of Illinois, much less the map of the United States, as today the third largest city in the U.S. The reason it is, is solely because of the railroad. Now, the Great Lakes also help it, because otherwise St. Louis would be the third largest city in the United States, as it once was. Once the rail lines in the United States were connected up to the Great Lakes, St. Louis held by comparison with its ability to handle that kind of cargo and the Great Lakes shipping, along with the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Erie Canal opened in 1825, that put Chicago on the map destined to be one of the five largest and greatest cities. And again, getting all the way up to number three. There is arguably nowhere you can go in Chicago or its suburbs where you can travel by car or even by bike for too many minutes before you will either travel over a set of railroad tracks that's crossing the road, you will go over a bridge on a bridge that's going over railroad tracks, or you will go under a bridge that has railroad tracks above. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I see bridges all the time. How do I know it's not a roadway for cars versus a railroad bridge? Easy, look at the orientation of the I-beams. The massive I-beams are spread far apart and go perpendicular to the road that you're traveling on. If that's the case, those railroad, though that bridge is holding cars because cars are much, much lighter weight. If the I-beams are parallel to the road you're traveling on and are extremely close together, that's a railroad bridge you're traveling under. To the point that railroads are so synonymous in the city of, to the city of Chicago, that Chicago is now not only on the national map, it is truly on the international map of the most rail lines per square mile in the world. Along that line as well, Chicago to this day has the longest rail yard in the world at over eight miles in length. The reason being is because Chicago is truly the hub between the Eastern railroads and the Western railroads. That's the reason why so many of the names of former, former, uh, what they call fallen flags, railroad companies that once existed, generally were locations that were either East of Chicago or West of Chicago, the Western Pacific, Union Pacific, the Baltimore and Ohio, Chesapeake and Ohio, the Western Maryland, 
all east, whereas the Pacifics, of course, are west, the Norfolk Southern. In here, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, we have the Norfolk Southern, which is, again, Norfolk, Virginia, on south, a predominantly eastern railroad. Now, yes, eventually we will have the transcontinental railroads that will go east-west, but the fact of the matter is that most of the time it was cheaper to send the goods on an eastern railroad to Chicago, then be picked up by the western railroads to leave Chicago and take it to the destinations west and vice versa. Why? Because of the massive spaghetti soup of rail lines in the United States. That massive collection of steel, steel uh, rails, the congestion for the railroads is like nowhere else in the world. To the point that in the early part of the 21st century, it still took railroads anywhere from two days to four days to get anywhere from the East Coast to Chicago, and then anywhere from three days to five days to get from Chicago anywhere on the West Coast. That's many days of travel, admittedly. But physically, to get through the city of Chicago took no less than 96 hours, no less than four days to get a rail car from the eastern side of the rails of the city to the west. It is getting better as time marches on, as I do follow that, even out here in Ohio. Of course, I miss the constant sound of railroads and the tracks that you could go over, always looking left and right to see if there was a train coming. Well, hopefully not too close, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what, as I say, is the reason why Chicago is on the world map and is certainly an important city in the uh, map here of the United States. So. With 140,000 miles of rails carrying 40 tons of goods per person, America has, again, as I said earlier, that insatiable appetite for our railroads and our railroad industry. So then, how does the South then accept the railroads coming south to them? That's the problem. As we'll see in the next podcast, the Southern economy was going to find itself, unfortunately, lagging significantly behind the Northern economy for reasons that we will discuss in podcast number five in our second part of United States history. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.